Amen. Well, please do turn with me now in your copies of God's Word to Isaiah chapter 47. Isaiah chapter 47. If you're using the church Bibles, this is on page 607. Isaiah chapter 47, reading from verse 1. Come down and sit in the dust, O virgin daughter of Babylon. Sit on the ground without a throne, O daughter of the Chaldeans. For you shall no more be called tender and delicate. Take the millstones and grind flour. Put off your veil. Strip off your robe. Uncover your legs. Pass through the rivers. Your nakedness shall be uncovered and your disgrace shall be seen. I will take vengeance and I will spare no one. Our Redeemer, the Lord of hosts is His name, is the Holy One of Israel. Sit in silence and go into darkness, O daughter of the Chaldeans, for you shall no more be called the mistress of kingdoms. I was angry with my people. I profaned my heritage. I gave them into your hand. You showed them no mercy. On the aged, you made your yoke exceedingly heavy. You said, I shall be mistress forever, so that you did not lay these things to heart or remember their end. Now, therefore, hear this, you lover of pleasures who sit securely, who say in your heart, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. These two things shall come to you in a moment, in one day. The loss of children and widowhood shall come upon you in full measure, in spite of your many sorceries and the great power of your enchantments. You felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. Your wisdom and your knowledge led you astray, and you said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. But evil shall come upon you, which you will not know how to charm away. Disaster shall fall upon you, for which you will not be able to atone, and ruin shall come upon you suddenly, of which you know nothing. Stand fast in your enchantments and your many sorceries, with which you have labored from your youth. Perhaps you may be able to succeed, perhaps you may inspire terror. You are wearied with your many counsels. Let them stand forth and save you. Those who divide the heavens, who gaze at the stars, who at the new moons make known what shall come upon you. Behold, they are like stubble. The fire consumes them. They cannot deliver themselves from the power of the flame. No coal for warming oneself is this. No fire to sit before Such to you are those with whom you have labored, who have done business with you from your youth. They wander about each in his own direction. There is no one to save you. Amen. Amen. Well, I was once speaking with a man who worked as a counselor within the court system. And he worked largely with those who have been convicted of crimes related to substance abuse. And this man told me that when he sits down with these men and women, he asks them, very simple but pointed question, why do you abuse alcohol? Why do you abuse drugs? And he said the answer would often come back um, with something to do with 
childhood trauma that they had experienced or with life situations that they found themselves in or with pressure that they had experienced from those around them. And while this counselor never minimized any of these things, he said that he would always stop at that point and he would say to them that none of those are the reasons why they abuse alcohol or drugs. The real reason why they did it was because it works. Their trauma, their life situation, their dysfunctional relationships, they led them to seek a way of escape. And alcohol and drugs provided that way of escape always and quickly. They did it because it worked. But really, it's the same with any of the idols that we are tempted to indulge in our lives. Tim Keller once said that an idol is when a good thing becomes an ultimate thing. Idolatry is when we take something good that God has given to us and we elevate it to such a status that we think we cannot live without it. We do it with money. We do it with relationships. We do it with careers. We do it with political parties and philosophies. We do it with food. We do it with possessions. We do it with our reputations. Whatever it is, we convince ourselves that we cannot live without it. And why? Well, we do it because it works. Because these things satisfy a deep craving that we have and because these things make us feel as if everything is going to be okay. That's the ultimate question that, that everyone's trying to answer, isn't it? How do I know that I will be okay? This world is a, a scary and a, a threatening place, and we are constantly asking ourselves, how do I know that I'm going to be okay? And every one of these little idols are ways that we try to answer that question. If only I had enough money, then I'll be okay. As long as people respect me, then I'll be okay. As long as I'm never hungry, then I'll be okay. And why do we look to these things? We look to them because they work. And as someone once put it, money isn't everything, but it sure takes the sting out of being poor. Good health isn't everything, but it's sure easier to be at peace without the torment of chronic pain. Family isn't everything, but there's a reason why Norman Rockwell painted large family gatherings and not atomized loneliness. We indulge idols because they work. Or at least they work until they don't. Right? Like those men and women in the court system, those idols work for a season and then they leave you high and dry and without the hope that they had once promised. What you are tempted to look for, to, for salvation will only deliver a greater slavery. And that's the very situation that Isaiah is confronting the Babylonians with here in chapter 47. Now, Isaiah has just given his final exhortation at the end of chapter 46 to the exiled people of Judah to turn to God. 
He's come to them at the end of chapter 47 with his last pointed exhortation to the people of God exiled in Babylon to trust in the gospel promises and put their faith in God and hold fast to the hope of salvation that God through Isaiah has held out to them again and again and again. Throughout this section, from the beginning of chapter 40, as we have noted, Isaiah has written essentially in cycles. He has said the same thing over and over again, not because he's redundant, but because repetition equals emphasis. And so Isaiah has come to them, and he has demonstrated the futility of the gods of the nations. And he has reminded the Judeans of the seriousness of their sin. And he has proclaimed to them that there is grace and mercy to be found in God. That while their guilt is great, his mercy is greater still. And at the end of chapter 46, God comes again and he says to the Judeans, Listen to me, you stubborn of heart, you who are far from righteousness... I bring near my righteousness. It is not far off, and my salvation will not delay. I will put salvation in Zion for Israel, my glory. Might you hear the grace in that? They are stubborn of heart. They are far from righteousness, but God says that He will bring righteousness near, and He will not delay in bringing salvation. Right? I'm not preaching on chapter 46 this morning, but, but just let that sink in again into your hearts, right? Put away any notions that you need to straighten yourselves up before you come to God. He knows your heart, and He knows how stubborn we can be to believe the promises of the gospel. He knows how wicked we are, and yet He says to us, come to me and trust me, And hold fast to me for salvation because this gospel is for stubborn, hard-hearted sinners like you. But now, having given that, really that last push to the Judeans at the end of chapter 46, now with chapter 47, Isaiah turns and he addresses not the Judeans anymore, but now the Babylonians. And the message that he has for them is so very different. While God has, through Isaiah, routinely driven into the hearts of stubborn Judah that there is salvation for them to be found in their God, he comes now and he says to the Babylonians, driving into their stubborn hearts, that there is no salvation to be found for them in their gods. We have just read the passage. It's a short one, but it's another one of these ones that I think makes more sense if we read it backwards. And in verses 12 through 15, the impotence of their idols is brought out, and their true helplessness is brought home. And in verses 12 and 13, we have one of these powerful, sarcastic calls in Scripture. Right? You'll note how the prophets especially do this, but the Biblical writers are not above using sarcasm to drive their points into the hearts of their hearers. And in verses 12 and 13, the sarcastic call comes to them to go and get their sorcerers. Go and get their astrologers and see if they might be able to save them from the destruction that the Lord is bringing. 
And what's the result going to be? Well, verse 14, in the end, they will just be consumed like stubble before fire. Now, that's one of these images that, that maybe you only know from Scripture. We don't live in a place surrounded by wheat fields. But as you know, we, Campbell and I were just in Scotland. It's harvest in Scotland, and everything is being harvested, potatoes and, and, and the wheat and the barley. And what happens once the wheat and the barley is brought in, you're just left with a field of stubble, just short little stalks. And what's that good for? Nothing except to be burned. They don't do it so much anymore because of environmental regulations, but when I was growing up, it wouldn't be uncommon for a farmer to just go out and set fire to the entire field. It's all you do with stubble. It's good for nothing, and it's dry, and it catches fire. And Isaiah says that's what they will be. These sorcerers, these astrologers, these, these wise men that they have gone to, to, to solicit the stars, to see what the fortunes hold for them. Isaiah says, go on, go ahead, go to them. And you'll find that they'll just be like a field of stubble consumed by the fire. They will be impotent and unable to save. And what's the result? Well, verses 8 through 11, it is that the pride of Babylon, which was built on this foundation of false religion and the worship of idols and the solicitation of the stars, all of it will be destroyed. In their idolatry, they sat and said, verse 8, I am, and there is no one besides me. I shall not sit as a widow or know the loss of children. In their hubris, build on this pride, on this idolatry, they sat secure as if they were the masters of the universe. Verse 10, you felt secure in your wickedness. You said, no one sees me. You said in your heart, I am and there is no one besides me. They thought they were untouchable. The greatest empire, as far as they were concerned, that the world had ever seen, and no one could even come close to touching Babylon. And why were they so confident? Because their idols had worked. They were confident because for so long the Babylonian empire did rule the world. And for so long, nothing could come against them. They could lie in peace in their beds, knowing that they were the greatest people that the world had ever seen. Their gods had secured it for them. Their sorcerers had delivered salvation for them. Their astrologers had so read the stars that they were able to control history and be the masters of their own destinies. The Babylonians sat prideful and confident because their idols worked until they didn't. And in verses 1 through 7, God says to them solemnly that a day is coming when they will be brought down from their pride and they will be humbled and they will see that their idols are as hollow and as worthless as they truly are. The image that Isaiah uses here, it's, it's a powerful and evocative one, isn't it? Right? We easily get it in our minds. Babylon is depicted as sitting like a, like a queen, like a, like, a, like a virgin queen, this, this beautiful and, and radiant monarch sitting over her empire. And what happens to her? She is forced down from her throne. She is forced down to, 
to grind out the flour, to perform menial labor. Her clothes are stripped from her, her dignity, her strength, her beauty, all of it removed from her, and her hubris and pride is replaced by total humiliation. The solemn warning to Babylon is that while her idols seem to have provided the good life, the day is coming when the judgment of God will fall on them and it will all be stripped away. And their wise men and their priests will be able to do nothing about it. But of course, this is not just gloating on the part of Israel's God. This is not just Isaiah coming and gloating over the Babylonians and in this promise of future destruction of those who have so, as Isaiah describes, so horribly treated the people of God. Now, this is a warning that comes from God through Isaiah with a purpose, really with two purposes. Isaiah writes these words primarily to bring comfort to the exiles. But remember, as the exiles sat in exile in Babylon, they saw the Babylonian gods working for them, right? It's what led to their spiritual malaise, to their confusion, even to that stubbornness that chapter 46 speaks of. But remember, to the exiles in Babylon, it seemed as if the Babylonian gods and the sorcerers and the astrologers were working, and they were helpless before them. Babylon was glorious and mighty. And you understand, they weren't just observing that as we do as we come to these passages. They were living it. They were feeling it. In fact, the success of the Babylonian gods was exasperating their pain as they at least at first wondered why their god was not working for them as the Babylonian gods had been working for them. Remember, to the exiles seemed, as we said a few weeks ago, like that great undoing of the covenants. Every step that Abraham had traveled as God covenanted with him to create a glorious kingdom of the redeemed. But now, as they sat back in the land from which Abraham had come, it seemed as if the covenant had unraveled, and their God now was nowhere to be seen, while, in contrast, Marduk And the other Babylonian gods were sitting as the apparent lords of the heavens and the earth. But here, as God brings this foretelling of Babylon's humiliation, He brings it to comfort His people. But in these cycles, God has made it emphatically clear that the exile was not the result of a failure on His part, not the result of his inability to stand in the face of the Babylonian gods. Rather, one thing that has been made emphatically clear was that the Lord has been sovereign even over this grievous exile. And that he was the one who in reality had orchestrated the Babylonians to come and invade the land and take his people captive so that their faithlessness might be rebuked. But in these cycles, God has also reminded them that in His grace and His mercy, He is determined to save His faithless people. And He is determined to create that kingdom that He had promised to Abraham, and that the day would come when it would be put on manifest display. His grace and His mercy displayed in the salvation of the wholly undeserving. 
Right? Throughout this section, God has reiterated and emphasized His total sovereignty over it all and over everyone involved. But now specifically, pointedly, He comes and He reassures His exiled people that a day is coming when the Babylonian pride will be humbled. A day will come when, when this will move from the realm of promise to reality. A day will come when there will be no more facade, no more appearance of the supremacy of the Babylonian gods. A day will come when those idols will not work anymore, and the pride of Babylon will be destroyed, and Babylon will lie humiliated before Israel's God. It was a word of comfort to the exiled people of God, a, a word of reassurance that while it might look like for a time that the idols have the upper hand, and while it might look for a time that salvation is to be found in places other than in the gospel, the day will come when it will all be laid bare and those idols will be shown to be no saviors at all. A day will come when all the deception of the idols will fall away and God's singular glory as Savior will be put on display. It's a word of comfort as much to us as it was it is the exiled Judeans. In fact, in Revelation 18, it is this very same image that is used to reassure the church of the final victory of Christ over all His and our enemies. Revelation 18, verse 1, after this, I saw another angel coming down from heaven, having great authority, and the earth was made bright with his glory, and he called out with a mighty voice, fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place for demons, a haunt for every unclean spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, a haunt for every unclean and detestable beast, right? You understand that in Revelation, Babylon, the name Babylon is expanded from that of this ancient empire to be the name that envelops all ungodly social, political, and economic systems, right? In other words, it's a name that encapsulates all the idols of this world, all of the worldviews and systems that people are tempted to put their faith and their confidence in, but which so often, like with the Babylonian idols, is opposed to God and opposed to His people. And like with the Babylonian idols, all of these political, economic, social systems are alluring because they work, at least for a time. It's what makes them so tempting. Why did Demas leave Paul? Because, 2 Timothy 4.10, he fell in love with the world. It was alluring. It was desirable in his eyes. It looked as if to leave Paul and to go back into the world would give him the desires of his heart. Why do people walk away from the church? because the life of the world is alluring, and it looks like it works. Why do people resist the free and lavish promises of the gospel? Because they don't think they need them, because their life is working. 
But the promise in Revelation, echoing the promise here, is that a day will come when all of those systems will come crashing down, and they will not work anymore. A day will come when all of those systems will be brought down, and they will be exposed as as hollow and worthless as they truly are. Those idols work. Not everybody outside of the church is miserable and suffering, but they only work for a time. And the day will come when they will be stripped bare and exposed as the hollow facades that they truly are. And so, this knowledge of this future judgment is a knowledge that comes to comfort the church. There may be seasons when the fortunes of the church recede, when Christians just seem like and and perhaps feel like, like fools for dedicating our lives to Christ. There'll be seasons where the church recedes and the culture rises up against it, and it says to us, really, is your Jesus this worth it? And they'll be part of our hearts that feel the pool of the culture and say, I'm not sure. When we will feel as if we are just being fools for following Jesus and giving up the pleasures and the enjoyments and the opportunities of this present age. There may be seasons, perhaps, like with the Judeans, when the fortunes of the church recede because of our own sin and faithlessness. There may be seasons when God gives us up, as it were, to the hands of the surrounding nations, that we might be taught our frailty and dependence and be brought to a deeper and fuller faith in Christ. There may be times when the Lord rebukes the church as He rebuked His ancient people. Now, I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet. But if you ask me what's happening to the church in the West, I think this is happening. The Lord is giving us into the hands of the surrounding nations that we might be taught to not be so complacent, that we might be taught not to be so comfortable, but that we might be taught to come back to Him and lay hold of Him afresh and with zeal. But whatever it might be, This comes and it assures us that these seasons will not last forever. Our God will not abandon us and He will not lose, as it were, to the idols that surround us. As immovable and permanent as these systems and idols of this world seem, the day will come when they will be exposed and humbled before the Lord and the people of God will be vindicated. And that through the apparent foolishness and weakness of the gospel, it will be shown that we have gained what all of humanity is searching for, true happiness, true contentment that can only be found in reconciliation with God. But there's a second thing to notice here, and that is the grace that is held out here for the Babylonians. Do you remember our great principle of Scripture interpretation, or or one of the great principles of Scripture interpretation, that the warning of judgment in Scripture always carries with it an invitation to faith and repentance? It's what we see in the conversion of Rahab, who only heard the stories of the power and the might of Israel's God and His judgment upon Egypt. It's what converted the Ninevites, though Jonah only ever preached a message of impending destruction. 
It's what the Lord says in Ezekiel 33. If you are reading through the McShane reading plan, you'll have read this just a, a few days ago. Ezekiel 33, verse 14, God says, Though I say to the wicked, you shall surely die. Yet, if he turns from his sin and does what is just and right, if the wicked restores the pledge, gives back what he has taken by robbery, and walks in the statutes of life, not doing injustice, he shall surely live. He shall not die. None of the sins that he has committed shall be remembered against him. He has done what is just and right. He shall surely live. It is a running principle throughout Scripture that the warning of judgment always comes with the invitation to faith and repentance. And here, this word is held out to the Babylonians that they too might see their destruction, that they might too might see what is headed their way, that they might forsake their idols, and that they might turn and put their faith in Israel's God. It's the very same message that we hold out to this world, isn't it? We know that their idols work, but only for a season. We know that a day is coming when all of these things that they are tempted to put their hope and their faith and their confidence in, we know that a day will come when it will all come crashing down and they will stand like Babylon here, naked, bare before the Lord. We know that their idols work until they don't. And at that point, they will face the recompense of the Lord. But we also know that there is grace and mercy for them. And now, we know that there is a gospel for them here and now, and so we come not gloating over future destruction, not just simply contenting ourselves in the knowledge that in the end Jesus wins and we will win with Him, but we go to that world and we bid them to come to God in Christ now to give up their idols now, to look to Christ now and find in Him the security and the satisfaction that their hearts so desperately crave. It's what the gospel says to you this morning. Maybe you have lived with a facade of religion that has covered a heart that has treasured idols, and those idols have worked. Or maybe you're a young man or a young woman beginning to wonder if following Jesus is really worth it. But you see your friends, you see the fun that they're having, you see the idols that they're worshiping, and it all seems to be working, and you begin to wonder if being a Christian is really worth it. But the warning to you is that those idols will not work in the long run. They will fail. But the gospel to you is that in Jesus Christ, there is a true Savior to be found in whom only life and joy is to be found. Jeremiah described idolatry as like going to the promise of satisfaction, but which can never deliver what they promise. But you remember what Jesus had said to the woman at the well, a woman who had pursued her idols whose idols had worked for a season until they didn't, and who then found herself outcast and sorrowful because of them. You remember Jesus said to her, John 4, talking about the well at which she was sitting, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, 
But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And so lay hold of Jesus and give up your little gods. And the promise of the gospel is that you will get what your heart desires. The security and the peace and the joy that can only come through the forgiveness of sins and reconciliation with God. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Father in heaven, we must confess that there are times when we look out into the world and we see their way of life and we wonder about the prosperity of the wicked. And we wonder about how their lives can be going so well and how their gods can be working so well for them. But Lord, we thank you for your word that exposes the reality of spiritual things, that shows us that all of these things, they are alluring and tempting, but they are hollow and they will fail. Father, we thank you that in Jesus, we have been brought to put our hope in something more solid and sure. Help us then to have hearts of compassion for the world around us, that we might see them as deceived as they are, and that we might pray for them, and that we might be faithful in telling them of Jesus who will never fail them. Lord, we pray that you would expose the idolatry that surrounds us, and we pray that the message of the gospel would take deep and lasting root in many hearts. Amen.